Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our next edition of Three Plastic Surgeons and a Microphone. I'm Dr. Sam DeJuricar of Dallas, Texas, whose Instagram handle is at Sam DeJuricar. And as always, I am joined by my two esteemed colleagues, Dr. Salvatore Pacella from La Jolla, California, who's at San Diego Plastic Surgeon on Instagram, and Dr. Sam Ria Paramus, New Jersey, who is Instagram handles at Bergen Cosmetic. Before we get into any sort of meat to talk about our show today, I am going to throw out our disclaimer, which is this show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is for informational purposes only. Treatment and results may vary based upon the circumstances, situation, and medical judgment after appropriate discussion. Always seek the advice of your surgeon or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding medical care. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking advice because of something in the show. So I'm excited about today's topic. This topic idea was brought to us today by Dr. Sam Ree, and we're going to be talking about facial and jawline contouring, which I know is something we all see a lot of in our practice. Dr. Ree, please guide us. Thanks. I'm just going to go ahead and throw out my patient's pick and then we can start talking about it and different treatment options and things that we could consider for a patient. So this is a young woman who let's see here, who uh, is interested in narrowing her face. She feels like her lower face is too big and fat and she came to me looking for treatment options. Okay. How old is she? She's young. She's under 30, like 20-something, 20, like young 20s. Okay. And she'd like to have, you said, a smaller lower face, a more sculpted lower face. Is that what she's going for? Yeah. She thought her face was too broad and big. Okay. Well, Dr. Pachella, yep. you want to start yeah, us off? Sure. The first question I have for you is, what is her weight? Is, is she at appropriate weight or thin, skinny? Her weight's appropriate. She's she has a pretty normal BMI. She's not obese in any way whatsoever. I think when I look at when we look at facial proportion, we want a nice oval shape to the face. We don't necessarily want a rectangular shape to the face. That's a that's a usually a very masculine attribute. And I could easily see how this gal would be concerned about this appearance. If you just look at her her straight on view here. She's got a very wide base of her jaw. And one thing I would say as a young person in your 20s, surgery is clearly something that is a huge commitment at a young age. So I would really tend to to lean towards non-surgical treatments for someone like her. Specifically, what really works very well in young women and young men who have a very thick corner of the jaw here. This is what's called the gonial angle. And uh, the gonial angle is created by the jawbone, but it's also created by a big muscle responsible for chewing called the masseter muscle. And that can be a very thick muscle in many people. And in fact, many of us are, are teeth grinders in the middle of the night. We have a little bit of sleep apnea here and there, myself in particular. And this area of your jawbone, if you really grind your teeth at night can be can be very thick. So sometimes a little strategic Botox or Dysport or other neuromodulator along the angle of the along the gonial angle will help over a couple months, six months to a year to reduce the overall profile. Yeah. 
I, I very much echo what Dr. Pacella has to say. I think Botox to the masseter muscles has really been something that's been popular in Southeast Asia for years. It's been something that for 10, 15 years has been one of the major areas is they'll actually use Botox. And it's a little bit different to what our approach in the U.S. had been for a long time. In the U.S., we had used Botox predominantly in the upper one-third of the face to try to deal with wrinkles. But if you think about it, Botox works specifically at the neuromuscular junction. And if you apply Botox selectively into large muscle groups, like they have for years with patients with like cerebral palsy or whatever, you can get selective muscle atrophy. So for the gonial angle or for the jawline area, using Botox every three to four months, I find that I have to use a substantial volume of Botox to actually achieve the effects. I probably would use 20 to 25 units per side of Botox every four months, and it would help tremendously with getting facial slimming. Other things that I look at when I see this patient, and I will say that in the era, in the last four to five years, when the program Facetune and Instagram filters have become so much more common, I've seen so much more patients coming in who want to have a more angular and refined look to them. They'll talk a lot about how the bottom of their chin really bothers them. And there's a variety of ways to actually handle the extra fat that she has below her chin. Just like Dr. Pacella was saying, there are non-invasive treatments, which I think are quite good, but you have to make some concessions to use them. Kybella, which was an injection, was something that was used a lot in my practice up until about two or three years ago. Kybella is an injection that you'll actually um, have to repeat two or three times, and it dissolves the fat almost instantaneously. However, it takes two to four months for the fat to go away. I've actually treated myself with Kybella a couple times. The second time was quite memorable because I, I did it, and then I got an international flight a few days later, and when I landed in Paris for what would have been my 45th birthday celebration. My neck was all swollen up <laughs> to the point where I really didn't feel comfortable putting any pictures on there unless I used substantial filters from my phone to actually make my neck better. It sort of defeated the whole purpose behind doing Kybella. But the point is non-invasive treatments, not that they're, they cause more swelling than surgery. For sure they do not, but they do cause substantial swelling. In, in our practice, we then have gone through an evolution where we were first using, we were using after Kybella, uh, cool sculpting was a really popular thing we would use to try to melt fat in this area. And now in the last six months, we've switched more to radio frequency. If we've seen really exciting things with Evoke and Evolve, which can, which can cause both a degree of skin tightening and fat removal as well. But there's a variety of non-surgical things that you can do for the jawline area to help, to help fix it. Obviously, liposuction is still the gold standard by which everything else would be measured. And given her age and given how young she is, if she were interested in amenable to liposuction, just run-of-the-mill regular liposuction should do very well, and she should get skin tightening with that. The other thing, you know, that I don't know if you want to talk about it, Pachella, or if you want me to talk about it, the buckle fat pads. That's an interesting area, and I'm curious philosophically what you guys think about that. I think removal of the buckle fat pads, which can be done under anesthesia or in the office, I prefer doing it under anesthesia, was a, was a treatment that was really popular in the 80s and 90s, usually in conjunction with a facelift to try to make people look more youthful or to give them a more angular look. As we understood more and more about what creates a youthful appearance, we went away from taking it out a lot because she may not like the fact that her face looks full, but she looks young. And 20 years down the road, she's going to want to look really young. So then for a while, buckle fat pattern removal kind of went away from my practice. And now it's coming back because people really want it. And they want that more angular sculpt look. And people will actually say, when I bring up to them, 
we need to be careful about taking out buccal fat pads because you'll look older down the road. They'll say they, they literally just say, "I'll get filler if I need it," and they're totally okay with that. Yeah, the, buccal, the buccal fat pad resection gives that filter look of the kissy face. Exactly. Right? <laughs> now, what, one thing going back to this gal here that I I do notice here is let's look at the middle of the face for a second here. So although the the lower third of her face is very wide and, and very thick, what I do notice is that the middle of her face is, is actually a little bit underdeveloped. If you look at the position of her eyes compared to where her cheekbones are, you can see that her eyes are quite prominent and her cheekbone is very recessed. So I think which you can use that as a little bit of a optical illusion. If you added a little bit of augmentation to the mid-face and reduced a bit of the volume of the lower face, that can achieve synergistically much more. So am I going in and out? I, I feel like I'm going in and out. No, we can hear you. Okay. Okay. What I was saying is if you add a little bit of volume to the mid face, reduce a bit of volume to the lower face, that just adds a little bit more synergy accordingly. Great point. Yes. And and how would you add that volume to the mid face? Pretty simple fat transfer procedure, I think. So we can take a little fat from her abdomen or wherever and uh, just add a little bit of uh, volume to to the cheek and mid face area here through a couple little tiny incisions. Something easily could be done in the office. Uh, or you could use some soft tissue filler, anything out there. Yeah. You know, I, and I, I like that sort of theme that you were you were talking about non-surgical things. If you did Botox to her masseter muscles, Kybella or cool sculpting to the chin, some filler injection to the cheeks, these are all things that you could do without surgery. Would you, If you did a fat transfer, would you do that in the office or would you do that with anesthesia? How would you do that? I'd probably do it in the office. She's uh, young enough. There's minimal minimal local anesthesia that's used, particularly if I'm doing it in the cheek. So I, th- I think it's pretty reasonable. Okay. So um, to ask you a few more questions, Dr. Ree. So yeah. I assume you had this whole conversation with her about surgical versus non-surgical approaches. What, what are her expectations? Like, what is it that are the things that she must have and she must achieve to, to get the results that she's looking for? Right. Really, I love listening to you guys discuss everything because it's pretty comprehensive. I think she was a patient who was pretty well informed. I think a lot of the younger patients that we see have done a lot of research or I don't know, social media, what have you, like you said, there are certain trends that come up. And so her, I have found that some of the younger patients have very specific procedures that they are interested in. And, and they come to you looking for those procedures. So in her case, when we talked about non-invasives, which she thought about, but some of the issues with younger patients, uh, especially something like uh, Botox to the masseter, which was one of the first things discussed, is uh, ongoing cost. I think that that was something that as a young professional, she wasn't sure she wanted to do. She was looking for more of a definitive treatment, which some of our patients go straight for, which was not unreasonable. And, and then obviously something that was extremely invasive, gonial angle reduction, which I had done uh, before at UCLA and earlier, was not something she wanted to consider. So she came to me with a list of procedures that she was interested in. The main one was some sort of liposuction of her neck because she felt that she was very heavy under her jaw. And then, and then like you said, there's this increasing trend for buccal fat excision or treatment. 
And when she presented those options that she really wanted to me, I thought that they were reasonable. We did talk about all the other ones that we um, just went through. Dr. Reed, just one question. So let's say she was interested in injection of disport or or a modulator to the masseter. And she said to you, is that going to affect how I chew? That's a big muscle for chewing, isn't it? Absolutely. I do a fair amount of neuroblockers, neuromuscular blockers for uh, masseter treatment. And they don't seem to have any issues in terms of chewing at all that I've seen, at least in the doses that I'm using. Not a problem. Yeah, there, there are, and if you remember from your time with Henry at UCLA, there's a couple different muscles that are responsible for chewing and what we call <laughs> mastication. So that I, I tell patients there are actually one, two, three, four, five, six more muscles that are in the face that are responsible for chewing. It's actually quite interesting that we have so much that, that there's a volume of muscle that's responsible for something that's so small. It just tells us how we used to be derived or evolved from creatures that used to tear meat out of our jaws. You know? <laughs> Seriously, think about it. Like, the temporalis oh. muscle is one of the biggest muscles in the face. The masseter is one of the biggest muscles yeah. in the face. Oh, I, the I, would, I was only laughing because you referred to tearing meat with your uh, jaws in the past tense, where we all know that's still <laughs> an active part of your life. <laughs> but... Uh, the, the other thing which is interesting was how Dr. Pacella and I both immediately went to the fact that we kind of stereotyped a young patient as not wanting to have surgery, where we thought, okay, she's young, she's going to want to avoid surgery, and we thought that recurring injectable treatments would be preferable. But it's but that's why it's so important to talk to our patients and find out what it is they're wanting. So where, where we were looking, which was, we'll try to avoid going to the operating room, instead, she was going directly to that. And so leads you to a very different way to treat the same issues. Very true. I just had PTSD, by the way, just when you talked about mastication about that's an in-service exam question. And then you have to name all the different cranial nerves for each of those muscles. In a, and so I just was yeah. like panicking for a second. I thought you were going to ask me that one too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. So yeah, so it's interesting because patients will often come to us as surgeons because they want surgery. And then if they're looking for something else, they don't necessarily come to us for or something else. All right. So let's move on. So let's talk just, so this was from the Mayo Clinic. I just pulled a diagram about neck liposuction. And I usually make three incisions when I do liposuction of the neck. I'll make one submental and then I'll make one behind each ear. Is there anything that you guys consider in particular when you're doing something like neck liposuction specifically? Yeah, I used to do it exactly the way you did. It, making three incisions. And I, I found that I wasn't getting a ton of value from the, the ones on the corners. And I just shifted to just one simple incision. And I think with the right cannula, I use a thin two millimeter cannula. I use power assisted liposuction. I think it breaks up the tissue really nicely. I'm able to get a lot out just from one little tiny incision. I'm, I've evolved more to Dr. Pacello's way of doing it as well. In the patient that you just demonstrated, I would do standard liposuction with a 1.8 and a 2.4 millimeter cannula just in the area below the neck. In an older patient who I'm concerned about laxity of the skin and maybe a little bit of jowls, I would add radio frequency. I would use face tight or Accutite. In those patients, I'll add, I'll now add 
uh, incisions behind the ear that you were referring to, but mainly so I can use radio frequency to get a component of skin tightening at the same time. In this patient who's youthful and it seems to have perfect skin elasticity, I would just use the one incision as demonstrated in this diagram. Sounds good. And then for the buccal fat, it's funny because when I was doing my craniofacial fellowship, we do, and in my early part of my career, we do Laforts. And that was exactly what you tried not to get because the buccal fat would always come out of the incision. It was always in the way. You had to push it away. And now I always found it ironic that we're deliberately making an incision to get to the buccal fat. It was always a thing we wanted to avoid. And I have done it both in office and under anesthesia. And it's a pretty straightforward procedure, I think, for, for most surgeons. Is there anything that you guys do specifically with your buccal fat excisions? Yeah, I think this is a popular procedure that you see on Instagram being done by many non-core providers in the office. And I think it's really important to understand for our listeners out here, you want a surgeon that feels very comfortable in this area, that is a certified facial plastic surgeon, a facial plastic surgeon or plastic surgeon doing this procedure. There are critical nerves and ducts in this area that if damaged are near impossible to fix. So this little hole you're seeing right here, if I recall correctly, Dr. Ree, that is called Stenson's duct, correct? Yes. And if you're not watching for that hole, you can easily blast through that. And the consequence is scarring of the biggest salivary gland in the entire face and chronic swelling of the face. I've actually seen this multiple times come into my office after patients with buccal fat excision from somewhere else where the, the Stenson's duct had been scarred down or lacerated for some reason, and the patient comes out with a massive thickness on the side of their face and, and tissue that needs to be drained. It's just an absolute disaster. So although it's very easy to perform, if it's done incorrectly, it can be a disaster. Yeah. And uh, just to follow up on what Dr. Pacella was saying... Another very important critical structure, which travels in the midst of the buccal fat, or are branches of the facial nerve, the buccal branches of the facial nerve, which um, are responsible for a lot of just the voluntary motions of facial expression over the cheek. And we talk about buccal fat pad excision, but you're not removing the entire buccal fat pad. And I'm not sure if there are non-core providers and people that aren't plastic surgeons or facial plastic surgeons who are doing the procedure who don't realize that. Because... The way that you do this operation, it's very straightforward. You make an incision through the cheek, you dissect through the muscles, you see the, the buccal fat pad, you let it spill out, but you're only removing about 20 to 25% of the gland when you're doing it, which on this diagram that Dr. Ree has is called the pterygomandibular extension of the buccal fat pad. You're just removing that bottom tail to create a chiseled, uh, a chiseled look. And if you do that and you just let it spill out, you can take out what's there without damaging the branches of the facial nerve, but I have a feeling there are people that are out there that are just trying to take out too much and they're digging in the cheek. They're getting, they're actually interfering with nerve branches and the extension of the parotid gland that Dr. Pacella was referring to. And that's how we run into problems. This should be a very straightforward operation to do with, through a minimal incision, but if the, your provider does not know what they're doing, there are serious problems that can happen. 
And then to raise the level of degree of difficulty here, a couple of years ago, I shifted my facelift practice into doing now a deep plane extended facelift. So I'm going fairly close to this area on the other side. So make an incision here, we're going deep into the face, we're pulling the deeper structures of the face. Many times we can encounter the buccal fat pad through a facelift incision. And it's fairly straightforward to remove it from a facelift on the opposite side without going into the mouth, as long as you're careful and you know what you're doing and you're the correct plane. Gentle spreading of the tissue, not a cutting, not using electrocautery, etc. That's funny. I, I'm glad you guys both mentioned those things because I always assume it's so straightforward, but that's because we have experience in these things. And I know not to mess with the parotid duct. I know not to over-resect. And I just assume everyone who's a provider does that, but you're absolutely right. There are people out there that do not know these things. And I guess no one should really assume, assume yeah. that. It's really the training that makes the difference. And I think that is one of the things to know is how much to resect also, I think when we talk about that overly gaunt appearance, there's, there is the thought of removing, removing the right amount, but not over removing, both for functional issues like the buckle branches, as well as aesthetically. One, one, other, one other point here, I think this kind of goes back to our training at Michigan and how as we started off as re plastic and reconstructive surgeons, and most of us have shifted towards cosmetic surgery, but just to go back to our training and our comfort level with these areas of anatomy, the, the absolute first time that I saw these structures in a live patient was in the middle of the night in an ER mm -hmm. um, in Ann Arbor. I, a gentleman got involved with a bar fight and had a bottle slashed across his face with a big Y-shaped laceration in the middle of the face. And I saw buccal nerve branches. I saw this entire buccal fat pad coming out of the wound. I saw two ends of Stenson's duct that I had to put a little tube in and carry it out through the mouth. So this was the best lesson in anatomy that I ever had. So, Yeah, that's exactly the same thing that happened to me. Big trauma, had to sew over the duct over a, a conduit. It was just, yeah. If you've done that, then this doesn't seem right. no. so scary. <laughs> <laughs> so um, learning the buckle fat pad removal in a weekend course just isn't cutting it. So yeah, th that is true. So no this is intended. <laughs> because it actually might be cutting it. Yeah, you don't want to be cutting it. Yeah. All right. So this was her after doing both the neck liposuction and the uh, buckle fat pad excision from the front. And uh, as you can see, and this is the discussion about older appearance is something that is of interest to me because obviously she does look older, but in a way that she loves, she thinks that this is something that she wanted to look. She did not want to look so baby-like and have such a round face. And that was exactly the look that she was going for. But you're right, in 20 years or 30 years, is that something that will be of issue to her? That's not something I actually thought of at the time of working with her on this Still, though, it's a very it's a very nice transformation. The shape of her face has changed from being from being so round. And now she has a heart shaped face to her. Her cheekbone definition looks 
more pronounced, even though you didn't even add any filler to her cheekbones. It looks as though just the, the facial proportions and the projection of the midface has changed profoundly. And it really shows what can be achieved with relatively straightforward procedures. Yeah, I think 20 years from now, she'll look older as a result from it and maybe have signs of advanced aging that she doesn't have now. But most patients aren't really thinking that way and they'll deal with it down the road. And with injectable fillers, which we can do in the office, you can easily overcome that. So very nice result. I think she's probably very pleased. Yeah, really good here. I, I think what I really notice here is you've, you've a subtle change that is noticeable, okay? And you can't quite put your finger on it. It doesn't really look like she had surgery. It didn't look like she really did much, but you've really recreated the gonial angle very nicely. I think that liposuction on the sides has worked tre tremendously. And then the excision of the buccal fat pad really created a situation where the malar, malar tissue looks much more prominent now because you've taken out the tissue down below. You really didn't add anything to the malar region. You didn't no, add no, any didn't. additional fat, but you've reduced fat. So it's that synergy of the mid-face that's very important. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think that this also shows there are different ways to address each different patient based on what they want. I think Kybella would have been a, 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 an option instead of neck liposuction. I have leaned, I do Kybella, but I've leaned away from it just because of what uh, Sam said about the neck swelling and the multiple treatments. And I think the skin tightening in an older patient is going to be important, I think, for sure. And so there are a lot of different options here that were raised and discussed that I think can be customized to every patient based on what they're looking for. And the other nice thing here, Dr. Ree, you, you'll see this in New Jersey, San Diego, Dallas, et cetera. You've now had this patient in your practice in her 20s, and you've done an excellent job with her. This is somebody that's going to reap the rewards of this throughout her lifetime. And that's somebody, she's now has a level of trust in you that this is somebody you can help throughout her entire lifetime if she has or ever has any other concerns. So that's the nice thing about our discipline in plastic surgery is the longevity of our patients if we do a great job with them. Yeah. I have one last question for you, Dr. Ree, for yeah. viewers that are considering these procedures. What's the post-operative recovery course? Is this, an, is this a hard thing for people to recover from? Can they exercise right afterwards? Do you have more compression garments? What can a patient who's considering neck liposuction and buccal fat pad removal, what do you tell them the recovery is going to be like? The buccal fat pad is a pretty quick recovery. I think the key to that is to just counsel patients to wait for results. There can be some swelling in that area, and it is a relatively subtle but significant result, but it can take a couple of weeks. They don't really have to do much other than some oral rinse just to you know protect the incision a little bit, nothing uh, fancy. And then I do have them wear a neck wrap for a couple of weeks. Sometimes they, it's, it's hard for patients at work to wear it all the time. So sometimes they'll wear it, they'll get rid of it sooner rather than later. But usually patients are up and running after uh, three, four weeks without too much, too much of an issue. The neck wrap is for the buccal fat pad or for the liposuction? Oh, for the neck liposuction, yeah. I'm pretty uh, adamant about that for the first week or two. And then I know no matter what I say, they're going to do what they want to do pretty much after that. <laughs> They've, they've learned to trust what they read on the internet more than they trust what we tell them to do, but exactly. What I actually do for my patients for exactly the reasons that you've said is I now try to negotiate myself into a week with that wrap around the head, and then I tell them to wear it when socially convenient for about six weeks thereafter, so when they're at home. Thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate it.
So we wrap up another show. That's fantastic. I really appreciate your guys' input and thoughts about everything, and uh, hope you guys have a great day. You as well. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Take care.